Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Mike McCabe is my guest today for Spirit in Action. He's one of my heroes. I met him and interviewed him back when he was the force behind the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, meticulously tracking campaign donations and the political favors that they bought. And I was inspired by his book, Blue Jeans in High Places. I was a supporter when he ran for the Democratic nomination for governor of Wisconsin in 2018, and I am further impressed by the recounting of that campaign and the deep thought, analysis, and storytelling all included in his latest book, Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. Mike McCabe is a humble and passionate bridge between the farm and the city, a commoner given his life to the common good, and he joins us today via Zoom. Mike, welcome back for the fourth time to Spirit in Action. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's so good to see you again. You're looking remarkably relaxed and happy, not nearly as worn out as last time I saw you, which is while you were on the trail running for governor. Well, that was an exhausting, but also exhilarating experience. Traveled over 100,000 miles in 11 months without once leaving the state of Wisconsin. It's hard to travel 100,000 miles and stay within the borders of our state, but uh, we managed to do it. It was a very grueling travel schedule, but the people met along the way were remarkable, and and it was uh, really an experience of a lifetime. I probably was really tired when I talked to you, but looking back on it, I have very fond memories of the journey. How does the mileage that you put on compare with what William Proxmire, Bill Proxmire used to do? I mean, he he did the shoestring budget type, spent a lot less than you did, I think. Yeah. In his day, he just went to, he was everywhere. He was at the state fair. He was at Lambeau Field for the Packard games. He was at Camp Randall Stadium for the Badger games. He was in small restaurants and cafes in just about every small town you can imagine. And one of the things that was amazing about his era and also his particular style of politics is that he never once spent more than $300 on one of his statewide campaigns for office. And his very last race for U.S. Senate, which he won in a landslide, he spent $145.10. It was really face-to-face campaigning everywhere he went. That was a different day. But we really did try to replicate a Proxmire-like campaign. Spent more money than Prox did in his day, but, but of course, we're vastly outspent by pretty much everybody else in the field. But tried to make up for it with tireless travel and shoe leather campaigning all across the state. Well, let's talk about your campaign and the, all of the experience and thought and policy and background that led to your book, Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. As you say in the book, you steadfastly refused the idea of running for governor of Wisconsin. You dug your heels in like, no, I'm not going there. I don't want this. But eventually you got drafted into it. Explain a little bit about that process. 
Yeah, my answer was hell no for a long time. I really didn't see myself as a candidate for office. I had, of course, been a government watchdog for many, many years. I had spent a lot of time on the outside of government, shining light in dark places within government and trying to expose corruption and trying to make democracy healthier and make the system work better for regular people. That had been my role and it was a role I was comfortable in. I was, of course, trained originally as a journalist, exposing corruption and doing the work that I did as director of Wisconsin Democracy Campaign for so many years was really investigative journalism of a sort. And I was very comfortable in that role. I had a hard time seeing myself in the role of candidate for public office or elected official. And I resisted that role for a long time. But enough people, hundreds, thousands of people who were hungry for something, they saw something missing. And for whatever reason, they saw the qualities in me that they were looking for. And so they kept nagging me and pushing me to do this. And eventually they even circulated a letter drafting me for the office and then started an online petition after that. And eventually it was those many people who got me yes. And to me, the only reason for me running for office, becoming a candidate, was to give them what they were wanting. I'm glad they did get me to yes, because as with my earlier experience in the Peace Corps, it was a life-altering experience. It was one of those things that I can look back at in my life and say that shaped me. You speak, Mike, about your time in the Peace Corps, and I was intrigued by that because even though I'd interviewed you three times before, I had never connected with your Peace Corps experience As you know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa from 1977 to 79. And so it's a little bit over 10 years later that you're in Mali, which I did travel through as well. And I found that time in the Peace Corps formative for me too, because from my point of view, living in a different country and particularly living in a disadvantaged country, a country with an unstable government, gives you insights into what is good about government, what's bad about government. There were coups against Nyasingbe Yadama, the president, dictator of Togo when I was there. There was coups in the neighboring country of Ghana. Benin had right next door to me had uh, just a year or so before I went to Togo, had a communist Marxist government come to power. So I saw around me stability and instability and what that meant at the people's level. What did you learn about government and what's important about government in the U.S. from your time in Mali? Well, during my time in Mali, I I also lived through a coup d'etat, a successful coup that that overthrew the military dictator who had ruled Mali for 20 years or so. And there was a revolution that ended up bringing about a democratically elected government and a democratically elected president who had been the editor of the underground newspaper that was feeding the population information about what the dictator's abuses were all about and how he had robbed the country of so much of of its wealth and deposited it in Switzerland and that kind of thing. And he ended up becoming the elected president in Mali. And, you know, I've watched that country go through upheaval and turmoil and tremendous political instability 
and lived through a revolution that led to a successful overthrow of the government there. So, you know, we don't have in our lives the common experience of of walking down the street and seeing armed military personnel and tanks and that kind of thing and going through military checkpoints. That's not our experience here in, in this country, but it was our daily experience there, being held up at those checkpoints as they were, were presumably checking your passport and seeing whether you were authorized to be where you were in the country at that time. But of course, what they were really doing is just stalling and buying time, you know, waiting for the bribe to be made. So bribery was part of daily life there as well. All of that was so alien to what my experience had been in a country with a stable, democratically elected government. And our system is deeply flawed. I I have been a critic of our system and the corruption that has seeped into our system. But compared to what I experienced and witnessed in Mali, we have so much stability here by comparison. And you're not bribing officials on a daily basis just to be allowed to pass and go back home or get to the capital city or anything like that. All of those experiences, you know, were very eye-opening, of course. But I'm sure you can relate to this, Mark. Not only did it open my eyes to what political and social conditions and economic conditions are like in much of the rest of the world, and America is so sealed off, so insulated from so much of the world, it was a big eye-opener in that regard. But also just on a personal level, I had never had the experience of being a minority, a racial minority. And here, when you're thrust into a position where you are the one white person in an all-black community, that, of course, is transformational. It didn't teach me what it's like to be black in America. It only taught me what it's like to be a white American in an all-black country. But even that is an amazing experience, having the opportunity to feel what it's like to be a racial minority, to be a a cultural minority, to be outside of your own cultural rules. That's such a valuable experience. And and it helped make me a, a very different person than I fear I would have been had I not had that opportunity for two years. Exactly. I had very similar experiences that way. I was aware, at least at one or two points during my time in Togo, that because I was the one person with white skin around, that means I could be targeted. As you say, the bribery situation, stop the person who's white because he's going to have money. You're not going to get any money out of the Togolese people there, but hey, squeeze him and he can get you get something out of it. So I experienced some negatives of that, but mostly I experienced a lot of people toadying to me because, hey, you're a rich person. I want a rich person as my friend. (laughs) When you talk about bribery, we don't commonly experience that in the U.S. I tend to disagree because I think you as a candidate for governor of Wisconsin, there's all kinds of businesses who say, I'll give you money, you give me the goods, right? That's bribery. And it's been legalized by the Supreme Court in two different decisions, including the Citizens United decision. Talk a little bit about legalized bribery. (laughs) That's the distinction I would make, Mark, is that here we have legal bribery. And we have sort of institutionalized bribery that occurs sort of in the corridors of power. 
and it's institutionalized and it's all been legitimized. It's not called a bribe when you bribe an elected official here in America. It's called a campaign contribution. It's been legitimized. It's been it's been given a seal of approval even by the highest court in our land. But what it really is, when you strip away the veneer, what it really is, is legal bribery. The irony is that illegal bribery, the old kind, once was legal in America and was outlawed in Wisconsin in 1897. So think about that. Wisconsin became a state in 1848. It was perfectly legal to bribe elected officials in Wisconsin for the first half century of statehood. And then finally, this corruption was confronted by the people of Wisconsin, and and there was a push to outlaw bribery. And indeed, the the under-the-table kind of bribe that we all think about when we think of bribe, that was outlawed in Wisconsin in 1897. And of course, that led to a lot of other massive reforms like banning corporate campaign contributions and corporate election spending, which then led to a wave of other reforms that helped regular people like workers' compensation being established in Wisconsin, unemployment compensation, child labor laws were put in place, public education systems were built. Wisconsin was the birthplace. The first kindergartens in America were were established in Wisconsin. The first vocational, technical, and adult education system anywhere in the country was established in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the first place to create primary elections, taking the nominating process out of smoke-filled rooms and giving it to the people. All of those reforms, I would argue, were an outgrowth of Wisconsin confronting the corruption of that era and outlawing bribery in 1897. All those other reforms happened in the early 1900s. We've now come full circle where we've allowed bribery to resurface and we've legitimized it. We've given it a legal stamp of approval, but the practice is as old as politics itself. It's about paying for influence. It's about paying for favors. And we see that in our government today. In Mali, what we were experiencing was the palm greasing. It was the it was slipping that police officer or that soldier a little bit of cash so that they would let you pass and they would let you return to your home or go to the capital to do whatever business you needed to take care of. And there was definitely political corruption. But when you think about it, the political corruption at Mali at the time was a dictator who ruled with an iron fist. He was a military general and he was basically looting the country. That's a different form of corruption that we don't often encounter here. We don't encounter the the soldier or the police officer expecting us to slip them some money just so that we can get on with our day. But we have an institutionalized system of legal bribery, I think, for our government to really work for the people, to get to the point where we have a society that is working well for all of us. We've got to deal with that institutionalized corruption, that legitimized bribery of our time where elected officials are being paid to perform favors for the wealthiest and most privileged in our society at the expense of everyone else. So it's a different form of corruption, but it's a corruption nevertheless. And it gives a great rate of return. I mean, call it literally, you know, you you invest a million dollars in this and you get a hundred million dollars back in favors from the government. I mean, it really is very lucrative thievery. 
It is. And, you know, when you think about the millions of dollars that these wealthy interests pump into election campaigns, it seems like a dizzying amount of money that they sink into politics. But as you say, they put tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into election campaigns, but they get billions back. They get tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of benefits, tax breaks, pork barrel spending projects that are steered their way. So it, it, it does end up being an incredibly lucrative investment for those with the means to play the game that way. Who pays for it all ends up being ordinary taxpayers. We pay for all of those lavish benefits that those interests get. And here we are in the midst of a pandemic. So we're not in a position where we can meet face to face right now. We're having to keep our physical distance. So, you know, we're doing Zoom meetings and all that kind of thing. We're in the midst of a pandemic that has caused millions of Americans to lose their jobs and millions of Americans have lost health insurance that was tied to that employment in the midst of a public health crisis. And at the same time, in the matter of weeks, the nation's billionaires have gotten almost a half trillion dollars wealthier than they were before the pandemic struck. So in a matter of weeks, they've gained more than a half a, a trillion dollars worth of additional wealth that's been added to their net worth at a time when so many people are suffering. That's the fundamental injustice of America's current political system and our economy. And, and to me, that economic inequality is tied to political inequality. And the two actually feed off each other. The more politically unequal we are, the more unequal we become economically because the rich are fed and, and those who are not rich suffer as a result. And the more economically unequal we become, the more the wealthy have massive amounts of money that they can throw into the political system to gain even more political influence. So there's a, a real tie between political and economic inequality, and the two really feed off each other. And we're in this vicious cycle where political inequality is breeding economic inequality, and that economic inequality then breeds more political inequality. And it's, it's really a vicious cycle that we're in in America. We've got to break that cycle if we're going to unscrew the country. And that reminds me that I've got to tell all you listeners to Spirit in Action, we are speaking with Mike McCabe right now. Unscrewing America is his book, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. I've had him as my guest here on Spirit in Action three times before, in part because he was the founder of Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. It's worth going back and listening to that interview to this day because it's so important to see the nuts and bolts of how we could have democracy. And I wanted to bring that question up right away, Mike, because you ran for governor of Wisconsin because you want to unscrew America. We have been screwed. We are in severe trouble. I don't think people recognize it. And you point out in the book that we don't really have democracy. That's not what the studies show. I, I'm not sure if that's true. It's possible on the local level in our cities and towns, villages, we still have democracy effectively working. But in our state capitals and in the nation's capital, the Princeton study that everyone knows of says, you know, 20, 30 years ago already, we do not have democracy. We have an oligarchy. Explain a little bit about that. Well, we have a system where money rules to a much greater extent than the people rule. 
That's what that Princeton study showed. It was actually some professors from Princeton and Northwestern University who joined forces in a study. What they showed was that if you look at the issues that are being dealt with in Congress, if there was big money behind one of those issues, if there were wealthy donors who wanted certain actions taken by Congress, Congress acted. If there was popular support, if the polls showed that there was widespread popular support for a particular action, but there wasn't a collection of interest groups funneling money to try to drive Congress to act, Congress wouldn't act. So what the study showed was that popular opinion, the public's wishes, had near zero impact on what Congress does. What really explained Congress's actions or inactions was the money influences. That led those researchers to conclude that this actually is more of an oligarchy than a democracy. It's rule by money, rule by the wealthy and privileged, not rule by the people. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that means we don't have democracy at all in our country. Uh, Because to me, democracy is much more of a verb than a noun. It's not something that we have so much as it's something that we do. And as long as we do democracy, as long as we engage in democracy as citizens, then we have some semblance of democracy. But there's no question that democracy is in very poor health right now because of the influences of big money in our system. And that's what those researchers were finding. And that's a troubling condition. And it's something that we've got to deal with if we're going to unscrew America. We've got to reinvigorate and revitalize democracy. But again, I would go back to that idea that democracy is more verb than noun. It's not just something that we have. It's something that we do. And if we do democracy, we can have democracy. If we don't do democracy, then it will slip from our grasp. And you're right, it's easier to engage in democracy at the local community level than it is at the state or national level. But the same influences are starting to infiltrate even local community politics, where big local developers will exert influence by funneling money into even local city council or county board elections around the country. So what's happened at the state level and and certainly at the national level can filter down to the local level if we're not careful. I want to grab a piece of that. Because you worked so many years with the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign and because of the ideas and the efforts that you disseminated as part of Blue Jeans in High Places, the book you released back in 2015 or 14, because of that, you're aware that a very important part of how we're shifting the power in this country on the local level, it's been a Republican-led effort to have the state prohibit the local communities from taking care of their problems. No, you can't have higher pollution standards. No, you can't have energy efficiency rules. Explain a little bit of what happened in Wisconsin, at least, and I think a number of other states in Wisconsin under Scott Walker. Over 130 laws were made in Wisconsin after 2011. And just in the span of the years that Scott Walker was governor, over 130 laws were made that took away local community ability to set policy or to make decisions. 
And it was on a breathtaking array of issues. Local communities couldn't set a minimum wage higher than the state minimum wage. They were limited in, in what they could do in terms of shoreline development. They couldn't set pollution standards that that all had to be done at the state level. They couldn't say no to an oil pipeline running through their local community, or they couldn't take actions that would stop, for example, frac sand mining in their backyards. There were so many areas where the state came in and said, you don't get to make that choice at the local community level. We're going to make that choice. A local electric cooperative couldn't take action to bring high-speed internet to people in, in a local community. The state had said, nope, you're not going to be able to bring good internet access to the people in your community because that would violate state law because we've written a state law so that only these big telecoms can come in and expand internet access for people. It touched virtually every part of life. And, you know, it was clear why. You had these big corporate interests that wanted to do business the way they want. They wanted to do as they please. And they didn't want pesky local governments in hundreds and hundreds of communities across Wisconsin to tell them they couldn't do as they please. So they went to the state capitol. They showered huge amounts of money on state lawmakers and said, will you pass these state laws that tell these local officials that they can't do these things and that we get to operate according to our own wishes? We get to do as we please and they can't stop us, those elected officials at the state capitol did exactly that. Even when local community residents were clamoring for change, their own elected representatives were telling those voters, our hands are tied. State law says we can't do what you want us to do. That's a rigging of the system by wealthy and powerful interests who are able to go to the state capitol and get what they want. Folks, we are speaking with Mike McCabe today. So you want to track down Mike McCabe and his work. Right now, he's with OurWisconsinRev.com, Our Wisconsin Revolution. Just Rev, uh, I assume you included that in there so you could also be a reverend and preach it to the people. OurWisconsinRev.com is the place you want to track down Mike McCabe. We've got a link to Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland on Northern Spirit Radio. It's Little Creek Press is the folks that you want to contact it with. You could go via Amazon and everywhere else. It's available there. But Little Creek Press, they're the ones who made it possible Let's reward them and let's just not fund the oligarchs any more than we need to. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, Amazon is selling it. Barnes and Noble is selling it. You could get them on all those websites, but why put more money in the pockets of the behemoths? Why not support a, a local Wisconsin-based independent publisher? Little Creek Press did make the project possible, and it's a Wisconsin-based company based out of Mineral Point. Why not help the local independent publisher rather than the giants? Absolutely. And we're all about that here for Northern Spirit Radio. Our website, northernspiritradio.org. We've got all of our guests of the last 15 years, including three previous times with Mike McCabe. You can listen to the programs. Most of our programming is what's called evergreen. It's not the flash in the pan for the moment. It is something that lasts and is part of forming a healthy life for this world. I mean, it's how do we make this planet in this country, in this city, a better place. And that's the work that Mike McCabe is involved in. So on our site, please come to our programs, rate them and post comments, because we love to hear from you. 
democracy is vibrant when the people speak. We need your voice. And so you can do at least a piece of that by commenting on our site. Donate also. We are not funded by corporations. We are not funded by the government. We're funded by the people. And that's the kind of campaign that Mike McCabe ran when he was running. And I want you to say some more about that in just a moment, Mike. It's so very important to support your local media. Mike McCabe started out as a journalist. The idea is to get the truth out to people so the people can make a good decision. And that's why your local community radio stations are so important. They're not part of the media, multi-billion dollar corporations who control almost all of the media in our country. So support your local community radio station. Make sure you get out the alternate message, the one that feeds the people instead of feeding the billionaires of this country. Please support them. And if you have some money, support Northern Spirit Radio. We have a donate button, of course. It's so important that we, the people, work together. Back to it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the details of your campaign. How do you get away from the fact that you need the big bucks? I mean, you've got some chapters in Unscrewing America that talk about alternatives. How do you run a campaign? If you don't have the billions at your command, how do you run a campaign for governor? I think you have to search for alternative forms of political capital. Money is a powerful political currency, but it's not the only political currency. And so what we aim to do was create a campaign that was people powered rather than money powered. We had to raise some money and we ended up raising a little bit over $300,000. Now we were raising and spending about $300,000 in a $93 million election. So what we tried to do was counter all that money power with people power. And so we built a statewide organization, had over 3,000 volunteers, and that helped counter, that got our message out to people. And I, I think helped change the dynamics of the race by changing the conversation, what was being debated, what was being discussed. I was really committed, Mark, to shaking up the system as I ran. And what ended up persuading me was that we had had three elections for governor where Scott Walker won. Each time the Democratic Party tried to anoint a candidate to run against Walker and kind of clear a path for a candidate, pour a lot of money behind that candidate. And three times this happened and three times Scott Walker won. So what I said is we're not going to have another election, a fourth election where the party chooses an establishment figure. We're going to have a vibrant primary. We're going to have debates and forums all across the state. And we're going to talk about issues that haven't been talked about. We're going to talk about a living wage, a real living wage, $15 an hour. In the past, when Walker won, his Democratic opponents wouldn't go above $10 an hour. They talked about a modest increase in the minimum wage, but only $10 an hour. And, and we talked, no, we're not going to have a minimum wage anymore. We're going to have a living wage in Wisconsin. And we're talking about badger care for all. We're going to bring health care to everybody. And that wasn't being talked about. Nobody was talking about Medicare for all in past elections against Walker. And, and we made that a priority. And we were talking about issues that weren't being touched on by previous candidates who ran against Scott Walker. 
That was our goal, was to change the conversation. And we felt that that was the best way to ultimately replace Scott Walker, was to have a much different kind of campaign against him. And what was fascinating is that as I would participate in one debate, or I was at one forum and I was talking about these issues, by the next one, some of the other candidates were also talking about those issues. And by the next debate after that, even more candidates had embraced those positions. And that was thrilling to watch. I can't tell you how many people said, you know, when you do that, you're just benefiting Scott Walker. You're going to scare away independent voters or people in the middle. You're just going to get Walker reelected. You're going to split the vote. And it was 2018 with that crowded primary field where 10 different people made the ballot as Democratic candidates. And at one point, there were 15 or 16 candidates in the field. 10 ended up qualifying for the ballot. And I think eight of us campaigned right up to election day. And that's the election where Scott Walker was defeated. That's the election where we had a change in leadership in the governor's office. And, you know, it was really about fighting against those establishment impulses and that desire to dumb down and limit the debate and not talk about a lot of issues. We wanted to change that dynamic. And to do that, I wasn't going to take the big money. I wasn't going to go to the corporate interests and say, you know, hey, you can give as much as $20,000 per individual. Or or if you're a political action committee, you, you can give me uh, $43,000. If you're a wealthy individual, you could write me a check for $20,000. I said, no, we're, we're going to run a campaign where we get no single donation above $200 and no more than $1,000 total from any single donor over the course of the entire campaign. We're going to make this people-powered. And I think the fascinating thing was how well we were able to get our word out and how successful we were in changing the conversation and altering the debate with just small donations from regular people. So like I said earlier, it was sort of our attempt to, in our day and age, to do what Bill Proxmeyer had done so many times in his time. You were running as a Democrat. Are you a member of the Democratic Party? And does this matter? You know, for party insiders, it mattered a lot because I I am not a member of any political party. I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. And I wasn't at the time that I was running for office. But of course, we have a very strong two-party system in America. We have a system that actively discriminates against independent or third-party candidates that really reinforces a two-party arrangement. And so if you're going to run for an office, if you run as an independent or third-party candidate, you get ignored. You're not included in the debates. You have a hard time reaching voters with your message. You have a devil of a time changing the conversation and getting issues discussed that the people in the establishment don't want anybody to talk about. So the choice was running as an independent, which is what I am, but being largely ignored doing it, or running as an independent within a major party primary, running as an independent, but running for the Democratic nomination, which got me included in all those debates and forums. And I participated in close to 50 different debates all around the state. And I was able to challenge those other candidates to talk about things that they otherwise wouldn't have talked about. I was able to get the eventual nominee to take positions that he wasn't taking at the beginning of the campaign, but by the end, he was taking those positions. And it was because he was, the conversation had been pushed to a different place. And 
I felt like that was the best way to have the biggest impact on the election that I could possibly have. Now, the party stalwarts, the, the insiders, resented greatly my presence in the race, and they, they threw up all kinds of obstacles. They denied me party member lists and voter lists, and they tried to erect barriers every way that they could. They were very vocal about how inappropriate they thought it was that somebody who was not a member of their party was running for their party's nomination. So I encountered a lot of that resistance from the party insiders, but I felt that it was the most impactful way that I could run. And I look back on it now and I feel like I made the right choice. It's the same choice that Bernie Sanders made in 2016. Bernie Sanders was not a member of the Democratic Party, yet he sought the Democratic Party nomination for president. He didn't end up getting it. But when you think of how much Bernie Sanders influenced the national conversation, nobody was talking about Medicare for all before 2016. No Democratic candidates were talking about it. And Hillary Clinton, even during the 2016 race, came out and said, it will never happen. Medicare for all will never happen in this country. Will never is a very long time. Bernie Sanders kept talking about Medicare for all and many other issues. By 2020, he ran for president again, but he was joined in that field of candidates by a whole bunch of people who would embrace Medicare for all. And not only were a number of the candidates for Medicare for all, but all of them had to talk about it because in debate after debate, they were challenged to say, do you support it or don't you? And if you don't, what do you support? You know, why don't you support Medicare for all? That was a monumental shift in the conversation in a four-year span. And that was Bernie Sanders' impact on presidential politics and the national conversation. He, he moved the entire debate to a different place, to, to somewhere it had never been. And so he didn't win the, the nomination in 2016. He didn't win it in 2020. But he has had an immense impact on presidential politics and the national conversation. And he's got people talking about things that were considered fringe issues which is now squarely in the mainstream and it's being discussed by all the candidates. What I was trying to do is have that same kind of impact in Wisconsin that Bernie Sanders had on a national scale. You talked about the effect that having Mike McCabe amongst the 10 or 15 people running for governor in Wisconsin, you talked about how you changed the conversation. Could you say a little bit more about the results and the outcome of both of the vote? You didn't get the nomination, Tony Evers did, but how much did you change him? How much have you changed the state since then? What percentage of the vote did you get? I was involved with early forums back in 2017 when the field hadn't even fully formed yet. There ended up being 15 or 16 or 17 people who were candidates at one point or another. Like I said before, 10 ended up actually qualifying for the ballot. Two who qualified for the ballot actually dropped out before Election Day because they weren't gaining any traction. Eight of us made it to the finish line. I ended up getting more votes than the eight-term mayor for Madison got. You know, here's somebody who's been elected mayor eight different times in the second biggest city in the state, and I got more votes than he did. I got more votes than former Democratic Party chairman got, who was a very prominent attorney from Milwaukee, the biggest city in, in Wisconsin. But I didn't get nearly as many votes as Tony Evers got. But I watched Tony 
and I had the opportunity to be on the stage with him many times. And I remember one in particular, we were in Milwaukee and it was a, a healthcare advocacy organization that sponsored the forum. And they wanted to focus solely on the issue of Medicaid expansion. That was their one issue. They wanted to hear from the candidates about whether we favored taking federal money that Scott Walker had turned down to expand eligibility for Medicaid in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, the Medicaid program is called Badger Care. So would we take that federal money to expand uh, Badger Care to ensure about 80,000 additional people? Every candidate, when asked, said, yes, it was a huge mistake to turn down that money. We should take the federal money instead of sending it back to Washington. We should put it to work here in Wisconsin. We should expand Badger Care. We can insure 80,000 more people. But when it got to me, I said, of course, we should take that federal money. And of course, we should expand Badger Care. And of course, we should make that insurance available to 80,000 more people. But we shouldn't stop there. We should do what we didn't do when the Affordable Care Act was adopted. We should set up our own insurance exchange at the state level. And then we should put Badger Care on that insurance exchange as a public option. And we should make it available to anybody who wants to enroll. Badger Care should be a choice for anybody who favors that insurance. If that's the best plan for them, they should be able to enroll regardless of income. And that started the debate about Badger Care for All. I started there in, in the fall of 2017, being the one candidate on stage saying we should make Badger Care for All state policy. And by the end of the campaign, every single candidate had embraced that idea, including Tony Evers, and said we should have Badger Care for All. One of the things, Mike, that you talked about a lot, in both in Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland, and while you were on the campaign trail, was the urban-rural divide. You've milked cows. I've milked cows. The urban-rural divide is very real. The voting is exactly why the state is as divided as it is. You've been a strong force for trying to bridge this urban-rural divide that has led to a divided country in a way that's only rarely been duplicated in our history. The divide has usually been that the more conservative issues are considered to be rurally favored, and the urban areas have favored more liberal. You've said, both in Blue Jeans from High Places and in Unscrewing America, that we need to stop looking at things as left and right, and we need to talk about them vertically. Do you feel like you've been at all able to bridge that urban-rural divide? I think personally, I can relate to people across that divide because I've I've lived with a foot in both worlds. I've spent close to half of my life living in the country and a little bit more than half of my life living in the second biggest city in our state. So I've lived across the divide. I've had a foot in both worlds. And that enables me to, I think, connect with people in a way that many can't. And so I've had some wonderful conversations with people and have been able to achieve a meeting of the minds with people that you wouldn't necessarily expect one of the goals I had as a candidate, and this is not the kind of thing that's going to get you elected, but I do think it's an important contribution in helping move our society forward. I would go to inner city neighborhoods in the biggest cities in Wisconsin, and I would talk about rural problems. And I would go out to rural communities, and I would talk about city problems. Because I, I wanted 
people to understand that urban and rural people have way more in common than they realize, that they face some very common struggles. And yes, they have some unique issues that they're dealing with, but they also have a lot in common. But I also wanted to do my part to help build bridges across that divide by helping to promote understanding of urban struggles in rural areas and helping to promote understanding of rural life in cities. One of the things that fascinated me, Mark, is that I would go into inner city Milwaukee and I would go into the poorest neighborhoods in Milwaukee, including ones in the most incarcerated zip code in America. 53206 in inner city Milwaukee, that's the most incarcerated zip code anywhere in America. More people per capita are in prison in that zip code than anywhere else in the country. It's a struggling area economically. It's been devastated, gutted. Uh, So many middle class incomes have been lost and so much opportunity has evaporated. It's a really struggling area. I would go in and I would talk about some of the things that were happening out in farm country. And one of the fascinating things that I found is people who are not the same color as those people living out in rural communities and who don't necessarily think that they're on the same wavelength politically as the people living out in those communities. They had an amazing ability to relate to what I was describing about rural life. And they had, I thought, a really striking level of interest in talking about what I was describing about the challenges in rural life. I noticed more curiosity, more interest, more openness to talking about rural challenges in the inner city than I ever found out in small rural communities about there wasn't that same level of curiosity about inner city life. It's almost like they, they assumed they knew what it was all about and they assumed what urban people's lives are like and they didn't want anything to do with it. People in the, in the political establishment, people in power have every reason to divide people because they can conquer people when they divide them. They try to divide people based on race. They try to create a white-black divide. They try to divide people economically. They create a rich-poor divide. They try to divide people based on geography. They try to create this rural-urban divide. They try to convince people that they should be at each other's throats. Because if they have regular people at each other's throats, then they can more easily rule them. Divide and conquer is a tactic that has been used since the beginning of politics to maintain their own power, to maintain their own control, to be able to rule. If regular people can see through that, can ever be led to see through that kind of tactic, then there is an amazing opportunity for an alliance to be built across rural-urban divides, across black-white divides, and across rich-poor divides. There's another really important topic that I hope you can provide some insight in. Again, folks, we're talking with Mike McCabe. His recent book is Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. Before that, he was author of Blue Jeans in High Places, and we commoners have a place in changing the future of this country. Uh, You should read that book as well. And look at the work still continuing of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. But the thing I wanted to ask you about was community building. 
you were definitely in trying to bring the rural and urban people together. You're trying to do community building. But my impression is that on the left, the liberal end, sometimes the urban end, community building is a lot harder sell than it is in the rural areas. There, they're very aware that they need their neighbor. You got to work together in a way that in the urban areas, and I would also say it's kind of an outgrowth of the 1950s, one foot in, one foot out. I'm not community joiner. I see that as being problematic is when you say you're not a Democrat. So you are automatically saying, and I, I think there's good reasons to be an independent. Don't get me wrong about that. But people know I've got your back way of thinking. And by saying you're not a Democrat, you're saying, no, I don't have your back. And so it's not too surprising when the attitude is, well, why should I have your back? So could you talk a little bit about community building and how that plays into your philosophy of life? And again, this is hints and hopes for the heartland. What part does community building need to play in the future of this country? I definitely understand where people who are loyal Democrats who belong to the party for a very long time. I, I can definitely understand where they're coming from when they say, hey, wait a second, you're not one of us. You haven't joined. You haven't locked arms with us. And, and so why should we be behind you? What I would as gently as possible try to convey to people who hold that view is be aware that most of the population, most people do not belong to any political party. And in fact, most Americans actually are very disillusioned with the major parties and um, want nothing to do with them. And they might be loyal voters. They might vote consistently for one party or the other. They may have chosen sides when it comes to voting, but they are alienated from the parties. So if you're going to build a political community, a broader, more cohesive political community, there has to be recognition by those who are part of the family that most others feel very alienated. It's got to be a two-way street. Yes, if you do want to join, you have to jump in with both feet. But if you're on the outside looking in, you're not going to jump in so long as you're treated as unwelcome. And so those who are part of the family need to be far more open and inviting to those who are feeling alienated. And that, of course, creates a condition where only a few times in American history has the two-party system been jarred or thrown into such upheaval where a new party emerges. I don't know if we're going to reach such a moment again, but you can see conditions that are brewing that could bring it about because so many people... The way I describe it, people are feeling politically homeless. Now, extend that to the broader idea of community building. You're right. Rural communities tend to be very tightly knit. Neighbors depend on neighbors because they have to. And sometimes that's harder to replicate in the cities. But one of the reasons is that a rural community is pretty homogenous. Pretty much everybody looks the same and, and shares basically the same values. In an urban area, it's not a homogenous environment. People with very vastly different values, with different color skin, with practicing vastly different religions, they're all sort of thrown into this environment together and they've got to deal with each other and sort of work things out. So it's, a, it's just a very different environment to operate in. And so community building is different in those different places. What I've primarily tried to do, and just to give an example, in lacrosse, 
I put together a panel of farmers and uh, representatives of farm organizations and had them come into the city of La Crosse and meet with city folk, give them an opportunity to mingle and talk with and hear from farmers. And then have those farmers have an opportunity to enlighten people about their own life struggles, but also be able to rub elbows with those people who are living in the city and maybe learn a thing or two about what life is like in the city of La Crosse. And I've tried to replicate that in as many places as I possibly can. Again, to try to build bridges, because I think community building is fundamentally about bridge building. And what saddens me so right now, when you think about our national leadership, is that the impulse seems to be building walls instead of building bridges. It's about actually putting people at at each other's throats and sowing the seeds of division rather than trying to unify people and help span those divides. You've got so many talents and such a good heart and willing hands to make a difference for this world. Norton Spirit Radio and specifically Spirit in Action is about lifting up the voice of people who are doing world healing work. Clearly, that's what Mike McCabe has been about. Certainly back to the time you were in the Peace Corps in Mali in West Africa, certainly in your time working with the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, all of the work that you did, try and raise people up to get the commoners, as almost all of us are, commoners aware of our status and what we need for a better country through your book, Blue Jeans in High Places, and certainly as you ran for governor in Wisconsin, and certainly in the reflections on it that you gave us through Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. Clearly, Mike McCabe is doing the work of my heart and of so many other people. I'm thankful for you putting yourself on the line to stand for the country, doing a job you didn't want to do, but you were still attempting to do it for the good of the country and particularly the state of Wisconsin, so dear to my heart, my birthplace, and where I've lived for all but those years when I lived over in Africa. With all of that in mind, I want to say thank you so much, Mike McCabe, for joining me here for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, Mark, and thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to to share thoughts. It's been great seeing you again, first of all, even if we have to do it over an online connection, but I really appreciate the opportunity and enjoyed the conversation very much. He's working with Our Wisconsin Revolution, spelled O-U-R. Wisconsin is W-I-S-C-O-N-S-I-N. Revolution is abbreviated R-E-V, Our Wisconsin Rev. Dot com. Check out his book via Little Creek Press, Unscrewing America. The links are on northernspiritradio.org. Join us next week for Spirit in Action and have a great week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh